Would you turn with me tonight to Philippians chapter 1. It is an absolute joy to serve you once again tonight to serve the Word of God to you. And tonight we want to think about an a unconverted religionist, <laughs> but this one did come to Jesus on his conditions by a supernatural, miraculous encounter with the Lord Jesus. We call him the Apostle Paul, once Saul of Tarsus, but now born of God, radically converted to become a follower of the Lord Jesus. And his life testimony to us is the life and the ministry of a man who had a purposeful and passionate uh, purpose to be a worshiper of the Lord Jesus. And he gives us a testimony as he is in Roman incarceration. And yet, even in the midst of Roman imprisonment, even at the threat of imminent death, he testifies to be a true worshiper and a faithful witness. He's been testifying in the first chapter of Philippians how the Lord employed his willingness to be involved in voluntary sacrifice and even suffering imprisonment for the evangelism of Caesar's elite praetorian guard. He's been testifying how God opened tremendous gospel opportunities to witness to these praetorian guards. And, but then suddenly, he, he breaks into a doxology of worship, even in the midst of incarceration. For he understands that he's been redeemed to worship. Notice what he says in verse 19. Philippians 1 and verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want to focus on tonight, verse 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, Paul is testifying of a, of a, a giving a glorious testimony of a man who has been radically converted and been transformed into a true and spiritual worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the very purpose for our redemption. If you've been born again, God has sought you out. He has graced you with repentance toward God and saving faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might live a life in which you magnify Jesus. Amen? A few years ago, before I bought my Mac computer, I'm not giving a commercial right now, but before I brought, uh, bought a Mac computer, I had a laptop, and I was having all kinds of trouble with this particular laptop. And so I got to searching uh, about where this laptop was made. 
And I found a little report that says this laptop had been uh, manufactured in five different nations. Now, if there was a tag on the soul of every born-again believer in this room tonight, and I could see that tag with the omniscient eyes of God, it would say, redeemed by grace, redeemed to worship. The very purpose for my birth from above, and if you're converted, your birth from above, is to live the totality of our lives for the glory of God and the magnification of Jesus. I remind you tonight that one of God's essential attributes is the aseity of God. And to put that into plain old Louisiana English, it means this. The Godhead, the Trinity, they are completely self-sufficient within themselves. In other words, God doesn't need you. And he doesn't need me. Amen? But we desperately need him. Matter of fact, every breath we breathe is a gift. From Almighty God. And yet, in amazing grace and marvelous mercy, God the Father purposed to give a love gift to His Son out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. And that gift, sooner or later, is going to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus, every one of them, and they will be transformed from obstinate rebels into authentic and ardent worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will seek to magnify Jesus on this earth and forever in glory. And the great tragedy of man's fall in the garden was the loss of this primary purpose. When Adam and Eve believed the lie of the deceiver and they sinned against God, they were cursed with what A.W. Tozer calls the ultimate identity crisis. Because they became blinded for the very purpose for which they were created, which was to live for the glory of God. Of the very existence for which they were, uh, were created in this world to be a true worshiper of the Lord Jesus was lost when they fell under the tyranny of sin and spiritually died. And since that moment of Adam and Eve's fall, unconverted man throughout this planet has been worshiping anything and everything except for the true and living God. I mentioned briefly this morning that God has blessed me with the tremendous privilege to preach and teach pastors and church planners and to evangelize over 200 foreign mission trips in 20 different nations. Been to India many times where the Hindus worship 33 million false gods. 
in Cuba, where I've had the privilege to minister on 38 mission trips since 1996. Uh, there is what is called Santeria. It's all mixed up in Roman Catholicism, and it's nothing less than Satan worship itself. All over Africa, in Kenya, Uganda, South Africa, Mozambique, these different nations that I've had the privilege of ministering in, uh, they're involved in ancestral worship, worshiping their dead ancestors. And even growing in those countries, Islam, uh, the worship of the moon god, Allah. If you travel over to Russia, where I've had the joy of teaching the pastors of the uh, Baptist Union in Russia and in Romania, the Orthodox Church is dominating throughout Eastern Europe. They worship another Jesus, a false Jesus. Oh, but when you come to our country, as we heard this morning, we have Americans worshiping. All kinds of false gods. There were hundreds of thousands worshiping yesterday. All over the Southeastern Conference. Oh, some of them, it's just a ball game. Turn it off. Don't lose any sleep over it when our tigers got slaughtered. But there are many who go to worship. That is their God. Some are worshiping possessions, pleasures, amusements, as we heard before, in their careers or whatever it may be. Many people in false religious systems, even in our own nation. And friends, because of all this false worship, mankind deserves nothing but the unmitigated wrath of God. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 and verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And if you dig into that word ungodliness, it is nothing less than the failure to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Oh, but when the Spirit of God plants the roots of conviction, contrition, and conversion in a sinner's heart, God takes away this sinner's old heart. He gives them a spiritual heart transplant for the glory of God. That new heart has a passion to live for the magnification of Jesus Christ. It's like a man who found a treasure hidden in the field, the Lord Jesus says. And for joy over finding that treasure, he goes and sells all that he might have it. Uh, Jesus says it's like a merchant who, are, who is seeking beautiful pearls, but when he's found the one pearl of great price, he sells all that he might have it. All oh, friends, when God performs a miraculous spiritual heart transplant in a man, a woman, even sometimes a young person, they do forsake their idols, their ways, their sins. They do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They embrace Jesus as the chief object of their devotion, the chief 
source of their delight because they have been ushered in to a first love intimacy with Jesus. Remember what Jesus told that church in the book of Revelation? You've fallen away from your what? First love. Well, you've got to have a first love before you can fall away from a first love. And when a person is born of God, they enter into this first love intimacy with Jesus. The Spirit of God comes to live in them and they begin to cry out, Abba, Father. And they begin to worship. They begin to fulfill the blessed privilege, the very purpose for which they were recreated to be a true and spiritual worshiper of the Lord. This is God's great mission in this fallen world to transform rebels into worshipers. This is why God the Son left the glory of heaven. This is why He lived a perfectly righteous life that we could never live. This is why, as we sang, He went to the cross to be the voluntary curse-bearer, wrath-bearer, sin-bearer. This is why God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we sinners might become the righteousness of God in union with Him. This is why Jesus triumphantly defeated death, hell, and the grave and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high as King of kings and Lord of lords for the supreme purpose of saving spiritually dead, blind, enslaved sinners and transforming them into true and spiritual worshipers. And as we look at this passage tonight, formerly Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle, is proclaiming that God's overarching purpose in his salvation is so that he might live and die in such a manner that Jesus Christ would be magnified, he would be displayed as supremely valuable to his own soul. And if you've been converted tonight, we have been born of God so that we might be living witnesses that we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. Amen? Later on in this epistle, Paul says, For we, speaking to born-again believers, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. One of the primary evidences that a man, woman, or young person has been truly circumcised in the heart is that the Holy Spirit is mightily working in that person to produce a lifestyle of genuine worship. If you're born again, the Spirit of God indwells you. And thus, He is energizing you. He is prompting you to live a life of worship, not in some superficial or shallow way, but authentic worship flowing out of a new heart that is now expressing adoration to Jesus and allegiance to Jesus. 
Paul testifies, listen, for me to live is Christ. He is saying, listen, my very entire purpose for living is the magnification of Jesus. And listen, this is not only Paul's testimony. This is a tremendous challenge to this preacher and to every genuine disciple in this room. It should cause us to make a most thorough examination of our heart and lives. He says, no matter what anyone else is living for, for me to live is Christ. And anyone who faces this statement should feel like they're standing on holy ground. This is a personal challenge to every born-again believer to evaluate their lives. Whatever life may be to other people, Jesus, Paul says, is my life. He's the source of my life. He's the substance of my life. He is the very center of my life. Now, the Apostle Paul is in prison. He's facing the prospect of possible death. And when you're facing the possibility of your death, you begin to think about things that really matter, don't you? I've been there four times. (laughs) And when you're facing death, you think about things that are most important in life. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying here, Jesus is the essence of my life. My supreme ambition is to live for Him in all the compartments of my life. Therefore, seeing His face in glory will be the great reward at my death. And my life, he says, is completely wrapped up in worshiping Jesus and witnessing for Jesus. There are folks in this room tonight who claim to be born of God. Can you truthfully testify that this is the aim? This is the goal? This is the ambition of your life? Are you seeking to live your life for the magnification of Jesus? 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, Brother Ed, I sang it tonight. I've been redeemed. That means you're not your own. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which now belong to the Lord. Paul says it this way to the church at Colossae. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not men. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. Are you seeking to live the totality of your life in light of the truth that God is the primary audience in your living? 
and consequently being pleasing to Him in every compartment of our life is to be the preeminent goal of my life? What are you saying, Brother Ed? Oh, true and spiritual worship is far more than singing a few songs and listening to a sermon on Sunday morning and Sunday night. That's congregational worship. But what I'm talking about is placing the totality of our lives at the disposal of the Lord for the purpose of living our lives for the glory of God and the magnification of Jesus. Paul writes 11 glorious chapters surround, clustering around the gospel, the first 11 chapters of Romans, and then immediately he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, which means to be set apart from your flesh's agendas and purposefully set apart unto God's agendas. This is an acceptable sacrifice. And then he says, this is your New Testament spiritual service of worship. That's far more than singing an old hymn or singing a contemporary song. No, the entirety of our life is to be an act of worship. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, authentic worship is to be our response to what God has accomplished on our behalf. Amen? Oh, if we had time to look at the, uh, the, the epistle to the church at Ephesus tonight, we would read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Then he begins to lay out some of those spiritual blessings. First of all, he says, uh, he, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then he determined to adopt me <laughs> into his family. He has predestined me to adoption as sons. In verse five, 6, second half of the verse, it says, God has made me an object of his favor and not his wrath. If you're born again, he's made us accepted. We are accepted in the beloved one. He's delivered every born-again believer in this room from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. We sang about this tonight. Uh, he has given us an eternal inheritance. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And these are only a few of those spiritual blessings. Certainly, we should respond in praise and thanksgiving to our God. Amen? Oh, but our response should go far beyond only praise and thanksgiving. Our response should flow into a life of acceptable worship to our Lord. 
Leonard Ravenhill is a great preacher from another era. He's in heaven now. He made this statement. I'm quoting him. Prayer is a preoccupation with our needs. Praise is a preoccupation with our blessings. But worship is a preoccupation with God. (laughs) It is to be preoccupied with the Lord to such a degree that we live for the exaltation of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. That Christ be magnified in my body. This is my desire. This is my delight. This is my determination to live for the magnification of Jesus who transformed my life on the Damascus Road. Now, when we think about this word worship, we normally think about music. I'm submitting to you that worship is to be the entirety of our life. And it's not about what we can get from God. It's all about what we can give to the Lord God because of the majesty and the glory of who He is. And I remind you that this man who's been born again is giving this testimony of worship from Roman incarceration. You know what that tells me? It tells me that worship is to be my response no matter the circumstances that I find myself in. Whether I'm on the mountaintop of blessing and the wind is at my back or whether I'm walking through the dark valley of adversity and the winds of affliction are howling in my face. You know where this word worship is used the first time in the scriptures? Well, it's used in Genesis 22. When God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain which God will tell him. This is a supreme test of Abraham's faith. Remember Isaac, God had performed a miracle by giving Isaac to Abraham and Sarah when they were far past childbearing years. And God also promised Abraham that there was going to be a great nation that would come through Isaac and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And now he's commanding Isaac. He's commanding Abraham to take his son Isaac And offer him as a sacrifice. What a great challenge of faith. Well, brothers and sisters, there's absolutely no evidence that Abraham doubted or debated or delayed. No, he immediately obeyed the Lord. And listen to the text. He arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the two young men, pay careful attention, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. 
we will come back to you. Abraham calls that worship. Friend, we're called to worship God not only when things are going smoothly in our life, but when we find ourselves in the middle of trials, troubles, tribulations, tragedies. As a matter of fact, my most profound times of worship have been in my darkest valleys of adversity. Remember Job? He lost all of his possessions. All of his servants were killed. The only ones who weren't killed were the ones that Satan allowed to live to come back and bring the terrible news. And then above it all, his ten precious children are killed in a whirlwind. His wife is about to tell him to curse God and die. And what is this godly man's response? The godliest man of his era. Oh, he sanctified his devastation with adoration. He tore his robe, he fell to the ground, shaved his head, and worshipped. He worshipped through the weeping. God calls the born-again believer to worship, whether they're on the mountaintop, or in there, there in the valley of adversity. Paul's in a Roman prison at the threat of execution, and yet he worships. How does he worship? He testifies, for me to live is Christ. And he is saying to us tonight that Jesus is one who is worth giving everything for. Jesus is one who is worth losing everything for. Jesus is one who is worth living for, being incarcerated for. And Jesus is one worth dying for. My sole aim in living, he says, is a passion and a purpose to magnify Jesus. I want to know him as intimately as I can. I want to serve him as faithfully as I can. I want to worship him as passionately as I can. I want to follow him as obediently as I can. That's what he's saying. And because he could truthfully testify for me to live as Christ, he could also testify and to die is gain. Do you notice there's only a comma and a conjunction between living and dying in that passage? For me to live as Christ, comma, conjunction, and to die is gain. No wonder James said, life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and it vanishes away. There's only a brief distance between life and death. And I'll tell you what, I can see the finish line. 
And friend, if your supreme ambition is to live a life that is well-pleasing to Jesus, then your death will be the glorious consummation of that ambition. As a matter of fact, a brother or a sister who has lived with this passion from me to live is Christ. When they die, you know what it is? It's an answer to Jesus' prayer. The death of every born-again disciple is an answer to Jesus' prayer. In his great high priestly prayer, he says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that those whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Every time a born-again follower of Jesus dies, it's another answer to the prayer of Jesus. No wonder the psalmist said, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, this is why Psalm 17, 15, the psalmist said, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. John Payton was planning to go as a missionary to the Hebrides, the South Sea Islands, to attempt to reach cannibals with the gospel. And one of the older brothers in his church where John Payton was a member. His name was Mr. Dixon. And he said to John Payton, he said, if you go there, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And John Payton said to Mr. Dixon, he said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in your years now and your own prospect is to soon be laid in the grave where you will be eaten by worms. So, Mr. Dixon, it makes no matter to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. Just as long as I live to serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. What about your life? If we could fill in the blank in this verse of your life, what would we fill in? For me to live is. I'm not talking about church services. I'm talking about your seven day a week bent of living. Your practice of lifestyle. For me to live is. If you cannot fill in Christ. You cannot fill in to die as gain. If you were arrested and charged with this verse, for me to live is Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Everyone in this room, in the balcony, on the floor, all of us are pouring out our life for someone or something. Everyone is worshiping someone or something. But Paul testifies... Here's my life of worship. For me to live is to magnify Jesus.
Christ, this former rebel, this former persecutor, this former blasphemer of the gospel and the Lord Jesus has been redeemed to become a worshiper. So his sincere desire and determination is to live the totality of his life for the magnification of Jesus. This is true worship. When someone treasures Jesus above all things, everyone and everything, this is worship. When it is your passion to magnify the Lord, to exalt the Lord above anything else in life, this is true and spiritual worship. C.T. Studd, the missionary, I've been in the area, both in Africa and India, where he was a missionary. He asked it this way, what are you living for? Seven days a week. Is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? Well, if I could find God's purpose for my life and fulfill it, that'd be worth living for. Amen? And the Word of God says, I have been redeemed by the grace of God for the purpose of being a worshiper who will magnify Jesus, whether in prosperity or adversity, whether in sickness or in health, whether in times of blessing or times of affliction. No matter the external circumstances, I want to magnify Jesus before this lost and dying world. What would God do with just this bunch here tonight if we were fulfilling the reality of this verse? It'd be awesome. Now, this word magnify, it's obvious what the meaning is. We can, it's used to, to describe a magnifying glass. What, what does a magnifying glass do? Well, it enlarges the object of which it is focused on. When you use a magnifying glass, you're increasing the size and the significance of whatever that object is. And in the same manner, when an unconverted person in Jonesboro, Louisiana, observes a born-again disciple walking through trials, troubles, tribulations, but still embracing Jesus as their supreme love and sovereign king, what does this do? It magnifies the reality of Jesus before their eyes. It's also used to describe a telescope. What does a telescope do? Well, it makes something very far and distant in space appear to be much closer than it is. It's the same picture. When we live a life of authentic worship, seeking to live for the glory of God, whether we're on the mountaintop or we're in the valley, whether we're in prosperity or adversity or even a pandemic, I'll tell you what. That makes Jesus become very up close and personal to the people who are observing our lives. 
Paul says that Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I want to live for the glory of the Lamb. Now, the supreme manifestation of the glory of God has been exhibited to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews calls him the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. When God the Son left the glories of heaven, he left, stepped out of time and space, and out of timelessness and into time and space, he manifested the glory of God. In human flesh, John says, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He, be, he beheld the very exhibition of the character of God in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He also beheld the Shekinah glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. But you know the greatest exhibition of the glory of God was in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the great high priest went to Calvary and presented himself as the Lamb of God, all we, as we heard this morning, like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned our own ways. That verse presents to us not only wicked sinfulness going astray from God, but willful selfishness going in our own way. All but the second half of the verse says, Jehovah God the Father, laid on Jehovah God the Son the iniquity of any sinner and every sinner who will come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Have you come to him? On his terms? If you have, you know what you should do tonight? You should make a fresh commitment to give your heart to him in adoration. To give your mind to him in contemplation. To give your body to him in consecration. To give your service and your soul winning to him in dedication. Paul, the same Paul, says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus. Amen? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together.